welcome to Career in Ruins, where this week I am Derek Pittman. Harry, welcome to Career Ruins. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lawrence. You're here because Derek's buggered off for a week. Derek is working very hard, uh, doing some very important fieldwork over in Greece. Um, I can't criticise him too much because I'll be going there next week to join him. So, <laughs> well, and he's paying for my flight. So. There we go. Yeah. What a legend. What a legend. Well, it's a pleasure to have you along. Thank, Thank you, very much. you for joining me. Today. Massive fan of the podcast. Yeah. How many have you listened to uh, so far? Uh, uh, half of one. <laughs> That'll do. That'll That's do. Pretty standard listener, yeah, I think. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't do yourself down. <laughs> but great to have you here. Um, Thank I you. I wonder if you could just give us a bit of background about your career in ruins and my so career people who don't know you um can understand why you're why we've asked you along to fill in for Derek this week okay thank you well i'm a bit like uh, you and uh, Derek i've uh, middle aged uh, hey. got a bit of a beard <laughs> uh, short hair um good sense of humor um non smoking and my background is archaeology um, so I did a degree at university, um, an interest in landscape archaeology, how things fit around within work within a landscape, um, and then I did my masters, where I specialised in survey and GIS. Sound familiar? Mm. And then um, <laughs> I was like worked... a Derek type character. Oh, to me. <laughs> and so then, since then, I've worked a little bit in commercial archaeology. Um, I've worked on various research project, projects and. I did take a bit of a sidetrack into con- contaminated land research. So okay. I was investigating uh, closed landfills, working out um, what was in the waste pile, um, working out how the uh, how the waste pile was developed, um, but using a range of geophysical techniques, just like you would in archaeology. Okay, um, transferable. Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. And it was, effectively, what we were looking at was very modern archaeology. Okay. <laughs> um, and archaeology is rubbish. And so that's how we... Um, that's how we worked out sort of tipping regimes and sort of the life history of a dump. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so when we started the podcast, yes. um, Derek and I did this thing about hashtag my first five jobs. Yeah. Um, and it seems only fitting that you should uh, hit us with your first five jobs. First five jobs. Okay. So I was a research assistant on a um, post-exploration project. Um, so the, the site was up in Scotland, um, Clyde Hallen. So I was working with Sheffield University. And then I worked for Southern Archaeological Services in Southampton. And then I worked at Cornwall Archaeological Unit down in Cornwall. Okay. Um, so both of those were commercial. Cornwall Archaeology Unit in Cornwall. That's the one. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right. It's yeah. funny that, isn't it? Yeah. Cornwall Archaeological Unit in Devon. Bit of a... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Imposter like, syndrome. Th- that wouldn't work. I don't think it would work. <laughs> yeah. the, the Devon Archaeological Service would get a bit yeah. upset about that. Um, and then what did I do after that? And then I... Did another um, research assistant post, and then I worked in contaminated land research. And then I got a job at Bournemouth University, my current post, where I am a demonstrator in geoinformatics. Uh-huh. The best kind of demonstration. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Not on the picket line. What's geoinformatics? It's spatial data, essentially. So it's spatial information. So you go out and collect spatial data, um, things, on the, uh, things on the ground, uh, measure what's there, measure how many things are there, and then pull it all together and see if that data is meaningful um, or find oh. meaning in a wider data set. So my mantra is we're all spatial data. Okay. So in, in um, development of smartphones, smartwatches and everything, we're, we're, we're all collecting spatial data all the time, and I really enjoy getting hold of that data mm-hmm. and sort of trying to look at it um, from, from 
in a novel way, really getting hold of like, data from Strava, for example, and then seeing where people are moving around, seeing people nice. use landscapes and so on. So that's, that's, that's my little geekiness. <laughs> I love it. Okay, well, that's why we brought you along, because you you cut from the same cloth. Thank you. There we go. Um, so normal starts the podcast is that Derek and I ask each other what's called uh, I have listened to the podcast uh, have you uh, yeah of course I have I was going to come up with a quiz questionnaire for you oh, okay what to be like in episode 3 what does huffle puffle puffle puff mean and who said it oh I see yeah, <laughs> well, I think you'll find it at 1 minute 53 in episode 10 oh we haven't got to the episode <laughs> I haven't had 10 10 hey, tricks tri- on you trick question trick question <laughs> I knew you'd fail but <laughs> no um, but what what's caught your attention this week what, what's got your mind flowing it's now I've been thinking about this, and obviously I've listened to the podcast, so I knew this was coming. <laughs> and it's very tenuously archaeological, or even more anthropologically. Um, at the weekend, I went to the cinema with my children, and I went to see a film, um, a children's film, and it was called Ralph Breaks the Internet. And I wasn't expecting much about it at all. I hadn't, you know, hadn't read about what it was. But they said they wanted to go and see it, so I said, "Yeah, let's go and see it." And it was a really good film. And I was sitting there thinking, why am I enjoying this so much? And the only reason I enjoyed it, I think, was because it really tickled or piqued my geekiness, my inner geekiness. Because it's all about these um, these characters who reside within arcade games. So set in modern times. It's a follow-up of Wreck-It Ralph. Follow-up to Wreck-It okay, Ralph. Exactly. Nice, yeah, nice yeah. so it's a sequel, um, which I hadn't seen. So that's why I had no ah, preconceptions okay, about okay. it. But these characters who live inside of the arcade game um, and they're in business when the when the arcade is open, they... they, they operate within the game but then the, the, the joke is or the story is that once the um, the arcade closes the characters go out of the game so they just hang out in nice. one yeah, of the bars yeah. um, at the arcade yeah it's great and, yeah, they've got this perfect life um, but then the the internet they connect the arcade to Wi-Fi and then can get online basically okay. so the arcade there's goes there's a whole world online. out there there is a whole world out there and I was thinking I was, I was watching I was like god this is really 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 exciting and I, I couldn't understand why I was getting excited by it but then I realised that where I am in my life I sort of straddled the pre-internet age and the post-internet age so I can appre- fully appreciate what things were like before the world wide web before the internet and then afterwards well we live in the internet age now so I can really understand both sides of that of that divide, and it was it was just really interesting just to see the excitement which the which the characters had on their face when they first went online. It was just <laughs> fantastic to see, and the way they when you think about the internet, how do you how do you draw the internet or describe the internet? It's quite difficult to conceptualise mm. that, but the animators did a really good job and just made it so exciting and and um, and and brilliant for, for for the children to understand and and the characters. Faces were sort of astonished by going online and exploring this world. It's a really, really good. It's a great way of sort of imagining or visualizing the internet. It was it was fantastic. Nice. So was the internet in their situation uh, basically the our time machine? So it was bringing them out of the age that they've been created in the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, and into the twenty first. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like all these whole new concepts, and <laughs> and it did get me. That's what I'm saying. It's a tenuous link to anthropology because it did get me thinking about so uh, how why do people like things? What 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 makes a video go viral, and what doesn't make a video go viral? Because part of the part of the um, part of the story is they've, they've got to make money, and so they make loads of viral videos and so on. So it was it did get me thinking about why do some things work, why some things popular, and why things aren't popular. Mm-hmm. What's um how do 
groups, cultural groups, how do they behave in certain scenarios and not in other scenarios. Yeah. It, it was it was really interesting and had, yeah, I really enjoyed it. That's a nice follow-on from last week's episode where we had Kath Walker and she was talking about these um, jadeite axes um, that are, are sort of hugely popular. They're, 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 they're really, really quite important items in the Neolithic. Yeah. And um, perhaps the viral video of the Neolithic period. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it was... Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> Too tenuous? <laughs> we'll go with it. We'll go with it. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'm taking that from your description and I'm making it my... Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, it was, it was a fantastic movie. So uh, I, it's great when you go and see something and it's, you, you're not expecting anything and then it just, yeah, does really please you. So I was... Excellent. How about you? What's what's piqued your interest this week? What's well, taking your fancy? Um, this week I've been thinking about <laughs> mental health, yeah, health and well-being, and the historic environment. Okay. So, um, as as you're aware, I'm working and studying and doing loads of other things. You never stop talking about it. <laughs> and uh, throwing myself in with a bit of a podcast in the spare time yeah, as well. As you do, yeah. spare time. And I, I found myself thinking about how the historic environment is affecting my mental health, both, both in a positive way and a, a negative, negative way. way. Interesting. <laughs> because interesting. Um, I've been cramming five days' worth of work into four, and then the yeah. other three days a week I've been spending preparing for my upgrade document for yeah, my PhD, mm. which goes in a couple of days, so I'm, I'm far beyond worrying about it now. Yeah. What will be, will be. But um, I, I started thinking about how the benefits of having such a fantastic network of colleagues and friends that are able to dispel my concerns, whether it's um, Ashley Green or Andy Brown or yourself or Kate Wellham that have all been giving me really good, decent support and advice and telling me not to listen to my concerns you, and overthink you, you it. Your self-doubt. Yeah, that's it. Um, Don't listen to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> or, or family and friends and how important it is to get that support and chat to people and make sure you're happy. But then work last week, I was so anxious and so pent up about... Um, the impending submission mm. of this upgrade document. And I'd organised a site visit with the Forestry Commission to go and look at some an area where we've got four or five scheduled Bronze Age burial mounds. This is in the New Forest, yeah? Yes, that's right, okay. yeah. And a, a lovely Roman road that's sh- scheduled as well. Yeah, and sounds like an idyllic day out. Lovely. What could go wrong? <laughs> Why are you getting stressed about this? <laughs> that's it. it. Sounds fab. So um, I popped out and had a chat with the beekeeper out there who's just making sure all the archaeology can be protected, where yeah. they can stack their wood. Yeah, everything's The fine. sun was shining. Beautiful. Uh, had you to go for a picnic. walk, couldn't take my electric car too far up the track, so I had to get my boots on and go for a walk. Oh, electric cars. Uh, and, um, and it was just great. It was just so nice. And for... Is there a sting in the tail here? No. Oh, good. Not at all. <laughs> it's just um, jump out the car, put your boots on, chat to Keith, who's um, making sure his forestry works isn't going to have a detrimental effect. Wander up the track, have a look at a couple of barrows, discuss how the gorse that's growing them on them probably isn't the best thing. And whilst the contractors are out there, if they could just lop off the uh, the, the yeah. growth with you following Historic England guidelines, of course, um, that would be fantastically beneficial to the historic environment and improve the their place and their setting as you walk through this lovely landscape. And there's a cuckoo going on oh. in the background, and carried on walking a bit further, and there's all this beautiful. Um, extant Roman road and sort of discuss with Keith the best way for them to go around it and the permissions they've got and the permissions they don't have and um, getting the best result for the, the woodland and for their heritage and oh it was just perfect. I got back in the car and took a deep breath and hadn't had any thoughts so what you're saying is doing your job 
actually made you forget about well, any not other... Well, so much the job, but being, the being outside and the taking in the natural environment and the historic environment, the job bit was an aside, but the benefits of being in a historic yeah, environment, a historic yeah. landscape, and uh, you and I and Derek all, always look at the not-so-natural landscapes, and we, we've looked at applying for funding for projects before, mm. and the New Forest is very much one of those not-so-natural yeah. yeah. natural environments where everyone sees it as green and Natural tranquil. and inverted colours. Yeah, but um, it's entirely artificial. Mm. But being out in that natural environment and appreciating the historic environment around me just made me so much happier Bliss. and calmer, and all my worries yeah. drifted away, and actually on the grand scheme of things... Who cares? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I think that's maybe why it's escapism, isn't it? Mm. And go to a cinema with with the mm. children on Sunday. Yeah. It, was just, it was lovely. It was just pure escapism. Mm. You could sit there almost guilt-free. Yeah. And just... I don't know I'd sit in the cinema guilt-free at the moment. Maybe next week. <laughs> next week. Well, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you stand and... But there's a lot to be said about going out and just walking and thinking and processing. Yeah. And I think... Putting things in perspective. Yeah, and the historic environment offers a really good... Um, platform for that. Yeah, I think. yeah. Well, there's lots of research now, isn't there, about uh, health and well-being yeah, and getting absolutely. out into the natural environment. Um, um, I think Tim Darvill did some work around Stonehenge, didn't he? Yeah. Um, the uh, and how that can bring out bring out you know, thoughts and 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 um, you know let, set aside your worries and mm. interact with it with the natural environment and the built environment. Mm. It's a, it's a man-made landscape, but it just calms you. That's and, it. And... Or even just walking around somewhere like Corfe Castle where you have to suddenly look at all this broken yeah. masonry and look yeah. at how the stonework is and the gates and you suddenly have to just think, switch off from the modern environment and yeah. focus on this, the environment you're in. Well, that sounds great. Yeah, so, yeah, very, whilst causing positive. me horrible anxiety <laughs> to a certain point, it solved all my anxieties. Yeah. And so you were saying that hand in is in uh, what, well, two or three two days? days time. Two days. Yeah. And then what are you doing after that? I don't oh. know if you've mentioned. Uh, have I not do? mentioned? I don't think you I'm have. Gonna, no. Well, I'm getting on a plane. Yeah. And okay. I'm going to fly to the Cook Islands. Where? Cook Islands. The Cook, no, I never heard yeah, of Yeah, no. Uh, you describe where they are? Polynesia, just, South, South Pacific, Polynesia. Do you know yeah. what? That sounds horrific. Uh, what, if I were you, if you're that anxious about your PhD <laughs> upgrade, I think you should take at least another month sitting in your office at home, <laughs> just finishing off and. and um, I don't know how much the historic environment can help me. <laughs> sack <laughs> off the uh, cocardes. It just sounds awful. Absolutely <laughs> awful. I can't wait. I cannot wait. I bet. But anyway, that's good. Mm. That's, that's some, um, yeah, I'm glad you're feeling a lot more positive. Zen. Zen like. Oh, yeah. um, good. Should we move on to the interview? Definitely. Definitely. So tell me about who you interviewed today. This week we've got Steve Tro, um, who has had a very lengthy career. He's done, <laughs> there's a bit in the interview where he talks about how many job titles he's had. It's okay. ridiculous. But he Hashtag he, my first fifteen jobs. My first <laughs> 50, 50, yeah, fifty jobs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he um he, he talks about his amazingly length, lengthy career and the different experiences and opportunities he's had. And he's he finished off at Historic England as head of research, director of research. Fantastic. Historic England. That was only last year. So right. um really interesting interview. Okay. But let's have a listen. Let's have a listen. <laughs> Steve, welcome to Career in Ruins. Um, <laughs> um, we, we've we only really recently met in the last year or so, I guess, as, as you've become a volunteer at the New Forest National, for the New Forest National Park Authority. But um, you've got a 
pretty rich <laughs> career in <laughs> working for Historic England and loads of other different things. So yeah. I wonder if we could start by you just giving us a breakdown of how you got into archaeology, yeah. um, how you moved through, through your career and how you got to your, your, your final yeah. post and okay. then perhaps what you're doing now with your spare time as well. Yeah, okay, <laughs> fine. Um, well, actually, I started wanting, I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was nine, nine. bizarrely. Okay, uh, nice. So my, my cousin said to me the other day, you were a bit of a weird kid. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then I was really fortunate when I was 14, um, Cardiff University, I used to live in Newport in South Wales. Right. And Cardiff University were um, running their excavations at the Roman Legionary Fortress at Usk. Wow which was run by Bill Manning. Mm -hmm. So I, I turned up and sort of asked him whether I could um, be part of the, the dig. As a nine-year-old or...? No, no, that was at uh, 14. Okay. Yeah, 14. So, um, and he, he very graciously said I could and said that I'd have to be paid less than the average DOE <laughs> digger, half half the, the salary, I think it was. And then he sold me my first WHS trial. <laughs> Do you still have that today? <laughs> so... No, sadly not. <laughs> Gave up the ghost. Mm. So basically I had to work for free for the first week in order to pay off my trial. Um, <laughs> but it was a really good excavation to be on, to start, because it was an enormous area excavation with 150-odd people involved. So mm. you could really understand wow. what was going on, whole buildings being excavated. It was a timber fortress, but it was, you know, enormous... Um, sophisticated area excavation, lots of excitement and also just amazing finds because um, when the army moved on from that fortress they just dumped everything so wow. there were huge finds trays full of stuff so what, what could be more exciting? Quick way to learn your uh, craft as well I guess yeah, in terms absolutely. of finds identification, yeah. <laughs> excavation of all manner of features yeah. I guess. But I was also the runner I was sent to get ice cream or something like that <laughs> for the diggers so um, I did that for two seasons then I went, when I was 16, I worked in Swansea for the Gwankley Morgan Archaeological Trust. I went to live in Swansea for a while, which was good fun. Mm -hmm. and, and then I dug in Killian, all of which convinced me that I wanted to be an archaeologist. So I went to the Institute of Archaeology in London mm -hmm. to do my um, degree, mm -hmm. uh, which was another great place to be, because at that stage it was an independent school right. of the university, not part of UCL, mm. as it is now. Um, and... It was the biggest archaeological department uh, of, of the time. Mm -hmm. with lots of really interesting staff, and so it was great. Um, and I was particularly fortunate to have Richard Rees as my tutor, who was a sort of natural-born teacher, and, and enthused me greatly. And then I, I then worked as a student for Richard in the Cotswolds for a while. Okay. Then I started my own excavation as a student of an Iron Age and Roman site wow. uh, in the Cotswolds, which I eventually got round to. Publishing Excellent. many years later with some help um, from uh, friends and colleagues. So, so, what sort of site was that? So it was a it was a, a supposedly a hill fort. Mm -hmm. uh, the Royal Commission classified it as a plough levelled hill fort, mm -hmm. and it was in their on their list of things uh, urgently requiring attention. Um, and it it was a very very late Iron Age enclosure. It mm -hmm. Appears to be part of something to do with the Badgenden. Oppidum, right. same sort of cultural material, including coin moulds and all sorts oh, of wow. interesting things. Um, and then an incredibly early first century AD Roman villa plonked in the middle of the hill fort. As you do. As you do. <laughs> uh, probably one of the earliest ones in Western England. Really. Fantastic. So really exciting. And as I say, uh, it did eventually get rid of <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh, a good thing, off my conscience. Um, 
then when I graduated, um, I attempted to do a PhD for a while. Mm -hmm. um, that hasn't quite been written up yet. <laughs> and then I moved on to working for um, various outfits in London, including working for Harvey Sheldon in Southwark. Right. Um, and that was great fun as well. Harvey was really good to work for. And I was involved in uh, various excavations on the medieval waterfront in London. Wow. And then on the amazing uh, Winchester Palace Roman building, which was another fantastic yeah. site with painted plaster and all sorts of interesting things. So that was great. Um, and then a job opportunity came up at the British Museum, which was basically working for Tim Potter, okay. who was Keeper of Roman Archaeology mm -hmm. at the BM. And uh, he was... Um, he was looking for someone to write up his excavations. That, interestingly, he'd done when he was 21 <laughs> at Braffin uh, in Hertfordshire, which is another sort of late Iron Age um, operatum-type site. Right. So I worked for Tim, uh, preparing that um, excavation for publication. Uh, and then that, when that was done, I did a couple of other things at the British Museum. And I got to a sort of interesting crossroads stage in my career as not quite knowing what I was going to do and not being entirely certain I was going to stay in archaeology right. at that stage. And then... Um, well, was there a particular reason that you... you just because you... <laughs> yeah, I ended up writing a site for an amateur archaeologist mm. uh, who was also a merchant banker. Right. Who used to pay me out of the small change in his pockets oh, at the goodness. end of the month. And I was beginning to feel like uh, I was going up a, a bit of a dead-end career-wise. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that might have that effect. <laughs> um, yeah, it was something to do. And it was just, in, you know, it was contract work. So I was in between contracts. Mm. Fairly desperate for cash. So, so I was just thinking that through. And then um, English Heritage, as it then was, um, advertised their new programme wanting assistant inspectors of ancient monuments for the Monuments Protection Programme, right. which was a big push to increase the number of sites that were scheduled. Yeah. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get one of those jobs. And I was working for a guy called Bill Startin, and it was right at the beginning of that programme. And I was one of three uh, assistant inspectors who were taken on to do the, the work. Um, and I was responsible for the south of England. Ah. The south, Midlands and North we were, we were dealing with. <laughs> south being quite a big area, then, not it's just southeast or southwest yeah. or central southern Indeed, region. Indeed, yeah. Um, and we learned how we had to go out and start scheduling things frantically. And then we began then to take on field workers um, so that we were running a small team. Okay. And the idea of those, those teams began to build over time, mm -hmm. uh, which was a relief. But it was a really good experience actually going out and doing the scheduling mm -hmm. and meeting all sorts of interesting, I bet. occasionally angry landowners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Having to sort of justify why you were um, going to schedule something on their land and what, what the implications were. So scheduling is, for people that don't know, okay, it's, yeah. the, uh, it's the sort of designation of a it's piece listing. that's it's nationally listing, important. Essentially for archaeological sites. Mm -hmm. Protected through government. Protected through legislation mm -hmm. and then requiring, um, if you want to do works to mm -hmm. them then, you have to apply for consent. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, for landowners that can be quite, mm. um, can be difficult or mm -hmm. problematic or at least they think it's going to be when it first happens. So it was it was a really interesting thing to do. But you learned some good um, communication skills. and I did, yeah, yeah. And the best piece of advice I got was from one of my fellow inspectors, Di Morgan Evans, who said, if you think you've got a difficult site meeting, always leave your car unlocked and the engine running. 
just in case. <laughs> wow. Wow. Did you ever have to implement that? So? No. no. <laughs> but it was, it was always useful to have that at the back of your bike. Um, I did that for about uh, three years, I think. And then um, at that stage, the, the way English heritage were organised, there were groups of people doing designation, listing and scheduling, and then there were the bigger group of inspectors who actually did the casework, so planning, mm -hmm. land use change related work. So I moved uh, sort of sideways, became an inspector of ancient monuments in what was called Ancient Monuments Division South in those days. Right. And I was responsible over various different periods of time. I used to be the Ancient Monuments Inspector for the Isle of Wight, for Hampshire, for Oxfordshire, for Berkshire, and for <laughs> Surrey. Blimey. Uh, which is great. It was busy. Uh, interesting time. It's a great job. Get out and about and see lots of really interesting yeah, of course. sites. Mm. Deal with lots of really interesting problems. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, that stage, it was the uh, Margaret Thatcher government and the Roads to Prosperity, as they called it in those days, which was the big roads building program right. okay. of the 1980s. So an awful lot of my work was to do with um, building new roads, often um, controversial new road um, schemes such as Twyford Down and the Newbury Bypass. Was, was the M3 through Mitchell Dever part of that? No, no that was uh, somewhat before my okay. time. <laughs> 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 that was it. But, but they left the link. It had petered out. And okay. So Toyford Down was was the, the, the gap between two sections of motorway, essentially. Okay. Because oh, that was see, see. the celebrated first, probably first eco-protest in advance of a road scheme with what was called the Dongus tribe. These protesters who sort of dug themselves into tunnels and hit up right. trees and things. And the archaeologists who were carrying out the work were seen as part of the you know the evil empire who were building <laughs> the road so it was, a, it was quite a tense yeah i can imagine situation mm. did anyone then, do any um excavations of those camps after the uh, protesters were moved out no i don't think anyone ever did. And, and sadly there's a really fascinating uh, monolith on the side of twyford down which records quote unquote the rape of the countryside and lists a load of people including margaret thatcher and various ministers right down to county councillors who were held responsible for wow. the travesty. Um, but it's never been listed, actually, or scheduled, and, and it's sadly now broken. It's oh. recumbent now oh. on the side of the motorway. Oh. Still worth a visit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I did. I was an inspector of ancient monuments for the best part of 10 years, I guess. And in that time, I used to be responsible for um, English Heritage Field Monument Wardens, and I did various things like sort of responsibility for coastal archaeology. Okay. And then eventually, despite the fact I can not dive and, and not even that good a swimmer, I was given responsibility for marine archaeology okay. in the transition period, because at that stage um, English Heritage didn't have legal responsibility for marine archaeology. And there was a sort of transition process to take on that responsibility. So I was given that to, to look after as well. And those things got me interested in policy. Mm -hmm. um, and then in uh, around uh, 1993, I think it was, um, English Heritage set up its first proper policy team. Right. And there was a job to lead the rural and environmental side of that policy team. So I applied for that and got it, so made the move into become a policy wonk at that stage. <laughs> policy wonk, <laughs> It's a noble term, really. 
Um, I think I've already got the title for your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. From something to Wonk. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that initially it was a singleton post and incredibly busy because I had to deal with people like the Countryside Agency, which is a vigorous new agency being set up to deal mm -hmm. with rural issues. Right. And there were about 800 people there. Right. And I was also dealing with um, um, English nature, as it was then, all the national parks, all the AONBs, the new agri-environment schemes and so on that mm -hmm. were being designed. Um, gradually, we built that up into a small team of three to four people, which was about right, actually. Um, but it was really good grounding. And... Um, I was involved, I was part of the team that DEFRA set up to design the environmental stewardship scheme, which was sort of multidisciplinary, multi-agency team, which again was a really fascinating thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then dealt with things like the rural, rural development regulation, which sounds really dry. <laughs> <laughs> Probably was very dry, actually, <laughs> thinking about it. But did a lot of good, did a lot of good for archaeology, course, did yeah. a lot of good for the countryside mm. generally. Mm. Um, and at that time also there was the huge revolution in things like wind energy and so on. So we had to devise new policies for wind turbines and what um, English heritage should or should not think about wind turbines, which itself was absolutely fascinating mm -hmm. because our advisory committees and our commissioners were as divided on wind energy and wind turbines as, as the rest of the population were. So wow. it's quite interesting trying to write a single policy to say what well, we should think about them with mm. no real agreement <laughs> <laughs> amongst our senior management about what, what actually we should say about it. So I did that for the best part of 10 years mm -hmm. and then Historic um, England, well English Heritage at that stage, created a new post which was called... Um, Heritage Protection Director. Right. Sorry, I have to stop and think I've had so many job titles <laughs> over the years, um, which was to run their um, new Heritage Protection Plan, but was essentially the research director post okay. at, at the organisation. Wow. So I started doing that in 2011. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and then in 2014, um, English Heritage, as it was then, split into two organisations. Um, the statutory side became... Historic England, yep. the um, the properties became a charity mm -hmm. uh, called the English Heritage Trust, and uh, I stayed with Historic England, and I became a member of the executive team okay. at that stage, and it was my job title changed. I became director of research, uh, which I did for six years, and that was a real privilege as well, because um, the research that Historic England and English Heritage before it does was really important yeah. and fundamental, um, you know, revolutionise the way we look at aerial photographs, characterisation, area assessment, as well as having a lot of really um, important experts, such as our radiocarbon experts, yeah. human remains experts. Such a broad, it must have been such a broad-ranging role to hold in terms of the, the your influence or your your input on the organisation. It was really exciting. Like... I found I had two professors on my staff <laughs> when I started, which was quite something. <laughs> um, and so I did that for six years, mm -hmm. um, obviously in quite difficult times because the government was cutting public expenditure mm. significantly and Historic England so basically had its funding halved over wow. 10 years or so. Mm. So obviously we had to make some tough decisions mm. about mm. what to do, what not to do, what to stop doing, 
while trying to still keep doing new things as well. So it was an interesting balancing act. I bet. And not, then, an, not an envious task, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was pleased to do it. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, it was um, mm. it was demanding and interesting. Mm. And then um, I got as far as um, 2018 mm-hmm. uh, when I was basically old enough to uh, retire. It's still luxurious <laughs> <laughs> age of just below 60, in fact. So oh. took took uh, retirement and uh, doing various interesting things in retirement, mm-hmm. including working um, with the National Trust as a volunteer on their Historic Environment Advisory Group, okay. which takes me back to doing and advising on interesting casework, yep. which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you know, I'm also a, a, a volunteer for the New Forest National Park, yep. both doing some archaeology, which is fantastic, mm-hmm. and doing some nature conservation work, which yeah. is also you, fantastic. You, you split her. I didn't realise you'd gone <laughs> over to that side. And done as much. I need to do a lot more. But, um, done some interesting scrub clearance and tree planting yeah. and so on. Geophysics surveys. Geophysics yeah. surveys with you and uh, your team mm-hmm. and some excavation with you and your team, mm-hmm. which has been fantastic. Yeah. It's the first excavation I've done for 30 years. <laughs> oh, really? Years. Was that the, the round barrow? Was it the yeah, front, that yeah, was the first. Of the cremation ends, yeah. I've got a trowel, or in that case, a pickaxe back in the ground for, for 30 years, right. which is really exciting. Yeah. Um, but also quite demanding. <laughs> yeah, they still had it, though. I had a lovely <laughs> section drawing. It was very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was really exciting. I forgot what a good and interesting intellectual challenge it is so I really enjoyed myself oh that's great yeah that, that's uh, that's a perfect introduction to your past and where you've been and what you've been doing and uh, not comparable to anyone we've had so far <laughs> so really really interesting wow there we go what a great interview legend that is amazing yeah what a what a diverse and different career he's had to a lot of the previous incredible he can't even remember all his job titles. i know i know hashtag my first 50 jobs <laughs> not, not my first five jobs incredible <laughs> i know yeah really really good it's it hard to pick out a few things yeah just to focus on well i think from my perspective it does give a really different perspective on careers in archaeology doesn't it yeah so, absolutely. so previously we, we spoken to lots of people who have gone through the academic route worked mm-hmm. in academia worked in research but i think what steve really highlighted there is the the legisl- legislative side of it. I can't really say that after a few pints. Um, and how integral archaeology is to the planning process and how um, how it is front and centre of government policy. That's it. And how we love a policy wonk. We do love a policy wonk, yeah. Are you a spatial wonk? Uh, only at the weekends. <laughs> What do you do at the weekends? <laughs> Your PhD. PhD. Did I mention I was doing a PhD? Uh, and, uh, and then you get into the Cook Islands. <laughs> yeah. We digress. Um, yeah, no, I thought it was fascinating. So so when he went back, um, when he first started his career, he was looking at, or, or went into scheduling mm. monuments. Yes, um, what was it? Ancient Monuments Inspector. And yeah, like yeah. Rapid scheduling. Yeah, and, and I mean, it was a massive time of change in, in the UK at the time. Mm. Um, and there was really a, like a, a land grab. And so that work was Fundamental. Yeah, that MMM, MMP work. Yeah, huge and massive importance. So, I mean, so many things he goes through have had huge benefits to this. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, it's not him alone. There's multiple people involved in this. But, but that, that, that period. Role, yeah, 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 exactly. Mm. It's just, it's just brilliant. What, what, what happened? You know how, how um, they reacted so quickly. I guess and, and set up this, um, the, the system. And 
And it's not just buildings either. It's not, not just protecting buildings, it's protecting landscapes, it's protecting lumps and bumps, if mm-hmm. you like, mm-hmm. um, which could very easily um, be ploughed away yeah. um, with that intensification of agriculture, um, with ploughs and so on. But, I mean, luckily, we've, we've, got, a, we've got a landscape now of preserved... Yeah, and it's all the the frameworks in place. People expect and understand that if they've got a monument on their land, they have to look after it. Yeah, not a perfect system, but I think it's um, a system that works. That's it. And interesting, you were saying about the uh, land, leave your car running if uh, you get to be an angry. (laughs) Angry landowners. Well, I found a bit of that when I was dealing with contaminated land, actually. No one likes to be told, no landowners like to be told that they can't do something Mm. or they've got to to leave something alone or they've got to pay for something. So, yeah, good advice. Always. Park your car pointing towards the exit and with the engine running. That's it. But then Steve moves on to talking about the high-level stewardship scheme, which is a huge, huge piece of work. And um, for those that aren't aware about it, New Forest is actually in the high, mm. the biggest high-level stewardship mm. scheme in Europe, £20 million over 10 years, wow. which runs out next year. But... Um, Historic monuments are a part of this. It's, it's about managing land and enhancing yes, it, land. Yes, it's part of a wider environmental landscape. A huge isn't it? umbrella scheme, but yeah. the historic environment is part of that. And yeah. suddenly, if you have a scheduled monument on your land, you can be um, coerced is the wrong word, but encouraged to look after yeah. that. And there's a benefit for you to look after. And that, that. goes from from huge estates um, and national parks right the way down to, to the smallest farmer who may have a, a few few hectares of land. That's it. And if there's a historic monument on there or any other um, uh, piece of the natural environment which which deserves preservation or protection, mm. um, it's a it's a scheme which can That's be it. which people can buy into. And it encourages them. There's benefits to them looking after that monument, yeah. and, and uh, it's not a cost or to detriment a detriment to their their works. No, but it is really good that the archaeology um, as a discipline is involved in that as Absolutely. well. It's not sidelined. Integral. At all. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So it's part of a wider collective, part of a wider. Um, Landscape um, protection, really. Mm. It it touches on what you were saying earlier about sort of mental health, mental well-being. Mm. If we lose it, it it's gone, isn't it? And it's it's a a relatively finite resource. (laughs) But once it's gone, it's gone, and and it's a it's a. If we can get people into the landscape, um, it may be cheaper than going to the doctors or Mm. or, or, uh, as an alternative therapy. So so it's it's valuable. Yeah, has value. Find yeah. value in these kind of things. It's just, uh, the number of things that he's been, Steve's been involved with in shaping that is just spectacular. Yeah. He almost singly goes through every aspect of the, the historic environment and the policies and the management yeah. and the approaches. Yeah. And really good. What I love though is when he when he first started his career um, as a student, he had his own site <laughs> and just happy to go away, <laughs> yeah. start digging. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. How, how old were you when you had your first excavation? Well, my first site actually was the Manly Down Mine. <laughs> 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 I think I was eight years old. Is then. that a euphemism? <laughs> Not at all. No, no, no. I had two older brothers who, um, so we're all all the way excavating my dad's hedge. Right. We did find lots of pottery. And, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, so you were? I, I thought you were saying your Demelza project, your recent project. No, no, no. That's, that's followed on from that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what that's what first. Have got you me. published? No, no, but that's, that's what, again what I picked up from Steve. Yeah, yeah. So it's very easy to dig and excavate. That's kind of the fun thing. Post excavation, bit of a snooze fest, and always takes a lot longer than the excavation. So nine-year-old Harry Manley who was digging the Manly Manly Down Mine. Manly Down Mine is is failed. It's in in press. Okay, that's what I think. Oh, yeah. You, you yeah. want to watch out? There'll be some websites up before you know it. Complaining well, about we, your we want answers. Yeah, there'll be complaints to the professional bodies. Well, <laughs> have to join first. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, fantastic. And what an interesting site. And Steve will go on to talk about that site a bit more um, 
in later in, in the interview. Brilliant. Mm. Okay. Mm. It's uh, yeah. Should we jump back in? Let's jump back in and have a listen to the rest of it then. Yeah. Uh, moving forwards, we have three set questions yeah. that we ask people as part of this podcast. And the first question is: if, Is there a piece of work you're particularly proud of um, that you've done in that? whole yeah. tranche of work you just talked about. Yeah, so when I was an ancient monuments inspector, um, I was responsible for the Isle of Wight. Um, the biggest problem identified when I took over was braiding Roman villa, which are really important Roman mosaics, really unusual and rare. Um, and at that stage, we're under a, a Victorian corrugated iron cover building, right. which was reached the end of its natural life. Mm-hmm. And as we were gradually discussing what we might do about that there was a catastrophic flood right in, in which the entire villa was flooded a huge amount of water and mud oh, came really? down onto the site and then as it dried out the, the mosaics began to buckle uh, like a sort of rocked up carpet and the chest uh, began to drop into oh, the vaults below so we had to devise a program of emergency conservation mm. We had to try and set up a trust because it was, this was owned by a private family. Right. Beginning to struggle to look after it. We mm-hmm. just didn't have the wherewithal mm-hmm. to apply for grants and so on. Um, and we had to do all, all of that at super quick speed with all sorts of interesting problems can't really go into. But um, the upshot now is that eventually the new trust was set, set up um, under my watch and then successfully applied for HLF grants and mm-hmm. there's now a new state-of-the-art cover building over the, the site and the mosaics and fantastic heart and they got really good visitor numbers and so on so it's great were you involved in the sort of, there must have you must have had a lot of experts coming in looking at best approaches to yeah, solving yeah. the problem yeah um it, it was it was a multidisciplinary mm. project and part of my job is to hold it all together and just keep it rolling mm. forward but i think the real challenge was the speed at which we had to do it yeah because having started thinking we had you know quite a bit of time to work out our approach it became a sort of emergency rescue situation and i guess with all these things there's not been a roman villa with mosaics that's had a catastrophic flood on it before so there's no reference material so you're just using the best you're trusting your experts and that come up with a quick but sensible approach to yeah, managing yeah. it protecting it making sure it's not going to get worse and a lot of exhibited roman mosaics have been lifted and relayed on modern right. basis whereas okay. these were still on their original foundations which was both exciting but also a challenge yeah in, i bet in technical terms so yeah oh, good choice i like that <laughs> uh, so moving forward then so you, you talked about something you're particularly proud of is there something that you've observed or experienced that a project or a scheme that you've been particularly envious of that you wish oh i would have loved to have been involved in that or discovered that um gosh yeah that's an interesting one i think um i inherited as i said i was research director at historic england but I can't claim the credit for one of the projects that was done there, mm-hmm. which was published while I was there, but I didn't initiate it. Mm-hmm. And that was um, uh, Alex Bayliss's Gathering Time project, right. where Alex used, um, uh, working with Cardiff University and Alistair uh, uh, Whittle, used Bayesian mathematics mm-hmm. uh, to r- rethink through the radiocarbon dating of Neolithic enclosures in southern England. Okay. And showed that rather than being built and occupied over several hundred years, as previously been thought, that they appear to have been built over something like a half century or so and occupied for a 
comparatively short amount oh, of time. Okay. And so what that project did, which was just amazing, um, was to take a you know, distant prehistory and re reduce what we were looking at to sort of generational terms. I mean, you could actually see what was happening in people's lifespans in that project. That's amazing. And it's such a long, what, for, for over 5,000 years ago and based on carbon dates and... Yeah. But the, the yeah. I guess referring back to historic material, like his excavation material. Yeah, yeah, including a lot of stuff that was in in archives, mm -hmm. showing how important archives mm. are, and um, this amazing combination of science and Bayesian mathematics. I mm. did get Alex to explain Bayesian <laughs> mathematics to me several times, but I'm none the wiser. No, I, 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 I can't explain <laughs> too much either. I'll nod and smile and say, "Yes, that's great." <laughs> that's, that's a good choice. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not. I can't. I must admit, I'm not aware of that project, but something to go and look at now. I think. So. Yeah, yeah, fantastic thing. So the last question we have as part of the the podcast is: um, Derek and I have made a fully functioning time machine. <laughs> and uh, everyone that comes on to the the show gets a free ticket. So congratulations, you, you've got a free ride. You. <laughs> uh, we just need to know where you'd like to go, what you'd like to see, and um, and why. Yeah, okay. Well, I, I, congratulations on inventing a time machine. I'm not sure that's entirely popular with archaeologists, because <laughs> presumably there are no swathes of unemployed archaeologists. <laughs> well, look, look, it's only the select few that come on the podcast that get to use it. So. Okay, and enough. Derek and I do use it for mischief now and again to influence <laughs> research. So. Yeah. Well, I'd have to say, I, as I said earlier on, when I was an undergraduate, I did an excavation in the Cotswolds, and mm. it's amazing, sort of Iron Age and uh, a site with this very, very early Roman villa. Mm. It's clearly a really high-status Iron Age site, something fantastically interesting going on there. But, you know, like all archaeological excavations, you're still left with a major stab in the dark. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty clear where I'd go in the time machine. I'd have to go back there. I'd go back there at about 50 BC. Okay. And, you know, hang around for, if I got that time. Oh, yeah, time, you can stay as long as, and then you'll just come back five seconds yeah, after you Yeah, because I can dot about in the time machine. Yeah, we're very there. flexible with the rules. You, you can't be killed and they can't see you. Yeah. You're not allowed to influence anything. So, so I'd so. tip in and out between about 50 BC and about 100 AD. Okay. And just to work out what the hell was really going on there, because to be honest, based on my excavations, I don't think we were that much further forward. We'd, <laughs> we'd raised a lot of questions, mm. so I'd go and get some answers. Oh, that's a great choice. That's a great choice. So, had, had you got some dating evidence from the site? Too? Yeah, it was. It was as late in the Iron Age as you can get okay. before becoming Roman, and then it ran through into the sort of the the site. The, the villa itself was first century AD, and okay. by the the middle of the second century AD, it was already beginning to go out of, out of use, really. Were you seeing a change in the material culture as they went from British Iron Age to Romano-British citizens? Um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the late Iron Age stuff has already had a lot of Roman influence in it okay. anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I, the real, the, there's still a question mark over what those sort of sites, it's all part of the Badgen and Oppidum, the extended Badgen and okay. Oppidum and uh, Tom Moore from Durham University is doing a lot of really good work there now, which will, I'm sure, shed more light, or mm -hmm. possibly not as much light as the time machine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, for example, in the small small area we excavated, we were finding um, numerous um, early Roman brooches okay. um, in phenomenal numbers, and right. um, no one can explain that the sort of numbers you'd expect if there was a temple or something on the site maybe but as far as we could see there wasn't but so yeah 
you need to just go back and sort all that out really fantastic well that's a great choice <laughs> steve thank you so much for sharing your career in ruins with us uh, today and uh, best of luck going forward i look forward to seeing you on a volunteer experience <laughs> thanks Lawrence. No, no more working with the enemy though it's no, archaeology only okay fair enough <laughs> thanks a lot cheers bye That was good. That was great. That was, um, yeah, very in-depth answer to your questions there. He, yeah, he thought yeah. a lot about your um, time machine question. I did. But I we'll, should we'll, say... We'll come um, on to that in a minute. Anyone picking up any clicking or... Uh, yeah, uh, I could hear that. The, the time machine noises that came into place. Um, that, we, we were recording in the Jack Hargreaves room, which is where Kath Walker works. Ah, OK. Um, okay. And they had the team of volunteers... Someone, in, a scribe making notes on the... People doing useful work as opposed to chatting away. career Wasting time. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so shout out to the volunteers again there at the Jack Hargreaves reference library. Brilliant. Yeah, so, good yeah. to see someone's doing some work, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was, that was good, though. He, I, I liked his um, answer about what he's really proud of, the um, uh, sort of preserving oh, the mosaics. such a good answer. In... in uh, Brady Ruben Villa. Yes. That's on the um, east coast of the Isle of Wight. Yeah, I did a bit of research of that because I don't really know much about the, the Romans in the Isle of Wight. Okay. I, I imagine it's a bit like the Triffids. They never quite made it there because of the water. <laughs> but, uh, um, the, the, as my research has told me, yeah, I'll go on then. the Romans... Uh, hang on, is your Wi-Fi working here? <laughs> <laughs> the second Augustus Legion under Vespasian yep. um, reached the Isle of Wight. In Legend. for CE. Okay. But, um, yeah, um... And the, the villa was built soon after that? Yeah, first century. Yeah, first century. Yeah. And it extended right the way into the fourth really, century. Really, yeah, developed quite substantially. Yeah, so we're not just seeing one phase of building, we're seeing a continuous um, development of, of these um, high-status structures. Yeah. And part of that, fundamental to it, were these amazing mosaics. Yes, right? yeah, really quite peculiar ones. There's one with a cockerel for a head. Yeah. Cockerel. Cockerel for a what? Head. For a, a cockerel for a head. <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't see a joke there at all. No, no. No. We'll just park that one. You you coming back again? Or? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was interesting, though. Yeah, fascinating um, discussion about how these, once these uh, remains are uncovered, it's all about curating them as well, isn't it? And mm. the ongoing pressures yeah. of it. So, so that villa um, was, was discovered in 1879, mm. and then it was excavated immediately afterwards in the 1880s. But since then, it's just been been preserved sort of in situ. So, so very little conservation work work has um, been undertaken on it. Mm. And I particularly like the noises you were making when Steve was describing <laughs> what was happening. To him. <laughs> oh, no. You were living it, weren't you? Yeah. Living, living the destruction. <laughs> um, but no, I think it's a really good something really to be proud of. To yeah, preserve I mean, and, and the, the I was looking at the site. I'm going to go out and visit it. I've not been myself. Yeah. But, um, He's inspired me to go and have a look, and it's a fantastic venue now. That heritage lottery funding, yeah, perfect example of how how that can can benefit the, yeah. the historic environment. Yeah, and, it, and it's a small charitable trust, and mm. they apply for the money, and they've they've got. No, the, yeah. really cool, and I love I love pragmat pragmatic approaches to managing and enhancing and improving yeah. the historic environment. It's, I think it's hands down yeah. my favourite bit of my 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 yeah. work, yeah. my day to day. Find a solution which yeah. which, is a, which fits everyone's and interest. Really. Exactly, and yeah. just best benefits the archaeology yeah. at the end of yeah. the day. But um, oh, I bet that was a route. But, a roller coaster and a bit of a frantic. A lot of stakeholders to please. Yeah, and manage, to get it sorted ASAP yeah, yeah. as well. That... Make sure that I think it doesn't become worse. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, the outcome's fantastic. So yeah, good choice on that. Yeah, yeah. I should be yeah. rightly proud of that. Yeah.
Um, so his thing which he's slightly jealous of, or envious of. Bayesian modelling. Bayes- I think as, as the guest presenter, it's only fair that you do the uh, explanation as to what Bayesian modelling is. Yeah, well, um, as Derek would say, um, so do you, Lawrence. <laughs> um, no, Derek would get Google out. Yeah, of course he would. Can't yeah, get, yeah, get yeah, your yeah, phone yeah. out. My, my, my Wi-Fi's down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Run out of data. Uh, but fantastic project, um, and it's a really seminal text. It's re- revolutionised how we've, we've um, looked at these... Um, all these radiocarbon dates from from the Neolithic. Radium by radio, radio and carbon dates, we mean carbon fourteen dates. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So it allows us by looking at the radioactive decay of um, of um, certain um, element, we can then begin to date sites. So we can look at if charcoal has been incorporated in the fill of a ditch, for example. We when the ditch is excavated, we can send that off for radiocarbon dating, and we can then get an approximate age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, can narrow it down to 500 years, 1,000 mm. years. Um, but what this what this project did, it took a whole series of dates and then looked at the probability um, of them existing, and that's where the Bayesian modelling comes in. So it looks at, it's all about probability, really, of, okay. of, of what the most likely dates are, and then it excludes the outlying dates based upon probability. And that then will really tie down and refine um, the date of individual monuments. And that's why Steve was saying that you can get it down now from, from 500 years to actually maybe one or two generations. Yeah, well, I got one back recently that, bearing in mind it was from the Neolithic, mm. it was within 50 years, just bananas. Yeah. It is bananas, yeah. isn't it? You know, that, that resolution, that temporal resolution, it's fantastic. It's revolutionising how we look at monuments. I was listening to a, one of your interviews um, a few weeks ago about Stonehenge, and it's talking about... Um, when you'd go and visit Stonehenge. Ah, that was Steve Fisher. Steve yeah. Fisher, ah. different, different the other Steve. Steve. Yeah, and he, he said about, you know, the obvious answer is to go to Stonehenge to find out what was built, but it's got such a long period, what's the point in doing that? Yeah. And it's exactly right, and, and, and people's perceptions of, of these monuments change. So, so tying it down to these really narrow dates does give us an idea that, that they're being built within one or two generations, and subsequent generations, maybe just looking at it and seeing it in a completely different way, mm. um, and viewing it and modelling or remodelling it but you know, if we could pick up that those subtle changes in the dating, then that's really exciting. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Good yeah. choice. Great I guess choice, that's yeah. the benefits of his roles that he's had. He's just he's particularly when he got to the top of yeah. Uh, he's got a fantastic overview of, of yeah. the different research projects. When you've got yeah. two professors working for you, then you gonna <laughs> yeah get to see it all. But yeah, yeah. Good, good choice, Steve. And then he, he moves on to his time machine answer. Yeah, very personal answer. Yeah. I thought very, very personal. Yeah, very good. Um, but it shows he really hasn't let this this site go though. No, he was excavated as a student, <laughs> and it's still nagging him all these years later. Which is which is good. Uh, one bit of advice. Maybe let it go, Steve. <laughs> You've got it published now. Um, but no, no. Yeah, so, he might undo all his publications. <laughs> yeah, sure. All that hard work wasted. <laughs> so he said he's going to go back to... Um, he said it was a long, long period of sites, didn't he? So yeah, like yeah Iron, Age, Iron Age transition. Yeah, so late Iron Age Roman. and into the Roman period. Mm, so, so we're looking at... Lots sorry, of artefacts. Uh, so 100, 100 to 200 BC, and then sort of the late Iron Age period, and then we've got the Romans coming across. We've got... Um, uh, the Caesar, Julius Caesar coming across in um, 50 uh, a BC. <laughs> I'll take your, uh, take your word on that. And then um, <laughs> uh, later invasion in AD 43, and then the um, subsequent conquering of the, of the um, southern part of Britain by Vespasian, our friend Vespasian, obviously visited the Isle of Wight as well. Mm. Um, but what that means is we've got, a fan- we've got an amazing shift in the politics mm. of the time. And and there's been a continuous debate, really, about whether 
the the locals, the natives, if you want, the local inhabitants are being swept out of the way, and the Romans are stamping their authority mm-hmm. on the uh, on the landscape. Take up the old forts, or are they are they just you know just a process of acculturation? Are people just going mm. yeah, whatever, whatever, carrying on their local traditions, but really just taking on some of the cultural trappings of the of the Roman period? So it's a I can see why he's interested in that as well. Yeah. Well, he hasn't let this site go because new finds are always coming up, new sites are being 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 discovered and excavated, and it's constantly we're constantly reappraising that mm. that time period. Well, yourself, Derek, and I have all worked on the Juratrigus Big Dig with Paul Cheatham and Miles Russell. Russell. Yeah, mm. that's right. So that's a site in southern Britain, um, central Dorset. It's a fantastic site um, on the sort of south-facing Chalklands, um, about well, ten miles inland from the Jurassic Coast. Mm-hmm. If you look at it now, it's um, it's just rolling fields of wheat and barley. It's fantastic, um, fantastic rural, um, rural idyll, really. Mm. But as you know, when we excavated it, um, what we were finding, we were finding like, massive settlements there. In fact, we found the uh, the, the the town of Duropolis. Oh yes, <laughs> who can forget Duropolis? <laughs> um, and you know, it really did highlight that there 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 was a really large scale settlements going on in the, in the landscape and how. How these people who lived here interacted with the with the um, with the Roman mm. military in the first instance, and then later on, it, it, it's fascinating. The, the record was really nicely showing that transition from roundhouses to longhouses to villas, from yeah. artifactual things to pets like. That's dogs. right, and then we had the Roman cemetery as well. Mm-hmm. So and um, so mortuary right. practice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so we're looking at how people are living, mm-hmm. but then how they're being curated when they're dead as well. Mm. So it, it is a fascinating period, and it's got so many parallels for for modern times as well. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. when you look at countries um, changing um, changing geopolitical scenarios, situations, and and again, how how do people just carry on and say, well, or do they take on um, take on uh, new new ideas, new cultural ideas, and so on? So it's it's a fascinating period, um, mm. and I wouldn't mind going on with him, actually. Yeah, good choice, Steve. Good, good choice. choice, good choice. Now, it was a really good interview from Steve. He's just so interesting. He's got such a wealth of knowledge and experience. I should say he was recently given an OBE for services really? to archaeology. So Fantastic. Well-deserved. Yeah, absolutely, well and um, very understated on that. Yeah, and I, I think I think it just goes to show that if you, you're an archaeologist, um, and he was joking at the end there, wasn't he, when he was saying about First time he'd done some digging in in yeah, yeah, most of his yeah. career. So he's an archaeologist, but didn't really picked up a trowel since the student days. Mm. But that doesn't mean you're not an archaeologist because you're right at the forefront of policy making, mm. research, um, or, or shaping research roles and so on. So there is it does demonstrate the sort of the, the the breadth of careers you can go on. Careers and ruins everywhere. Careers and yeah. ruins everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But a, a wide variety of careers as well. A wide variety of ruins. There we so, go. Yeah. Harry, stuff. cheers for joining me this week. Not a problem, I loved right. it. As I understand it, you're back with Derek next week. Yeah, I'm going to be uh, working hard out in, out in Greece. Yeah, yeah you're, going, you're flying out to join him. Flying out to join him. And what are you going to be doing? We will be doing a little bit of survey work and we're going to be doing a little bit of um, artefact recovery as well. What are you looking at? What are you looking? I don't think Derek's talked about the site yet. Oh, OK. It's a site which he's been working on with some colleagues from Gothenburg University. Mm-hmm. So it's a um, prehistoric uh, settlement, but... Um, on a big hill, effectively, but at the base of the hill, there's um, classical, classic Greek and Roman, Hellenistic, and all yeah, everything yeah. Between. So the, mm. the small heaps are, are there. So there's lots of ruins, and effectively, what we're doing is part of um, uh, ongoing investigation. We're, we're just going to be um, assessing 
what's what's on the ground. Mm-hmm. So effectively, a series of walkover surveys to yeah. try and assess geophysics, geophysics, but also then look, look at the artifacts as well to see if we can get a handle on what kind of remains were being. Um, Spatial distribution. Yep. Mm, Geo- okay. Bit of geochemistry as well. Oh, you spatial wonk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell us what you're going to be doing in the Cook Islands. Um, well, I'm popping out with Kate Willem, um, Colin Richards and Jane Downs. Yeah. Uh, we're being joined by Francisco, my friend Francisco from uh, Easter Island, Rapa Nui. Okay. Who's the head of museum out there. Fantastic. Um, and a couple of other people from New Zealand are joining us and we're going to be doing some survey work yeah um, okay when we were out there previously we geophysical were, survey uh, no geophysics yet this year just um, walkover surveys level 2 type surveys okay. so 3D recording of yeah. uh, central locations of sites to, yeah um, last time we were out there we created the first historic environment records in the fantastic so, so taking a camera and cameras visual um, records yeah written records descriptions measurements and okay. um so we're moving on to two other islands. So we'll be on Rarotonga and Mangaya. Um, and, and is that with the local Yeah, local we'll be working with well? them, local heritage groups. Right, it's a really right. interesting aspect. Um, the heritage out there is possibly slightly overlooked. Yeah. Um, so working with locals to engage students and um, other interest groups, looking at tourism around the historic environment oh, That sounds well. amazing. So I can't wait. I bet. Great stuff. Thanks, Lawrence. I've really enjoyed this. Cheers, mate. All the best. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Career and Ruins podcast. Please make sure that you subscribe to our downloads on whatever whatever system you receive your podcast from. Make sure you comment. Do send us any questions or thoughts you have on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We also have a Facebook page. And uh, we'll, we'll look to trying to reply to as many questions as we can, hopefully in the podcast as well. And sound production on this episode has been done by Guy from BucketofSound.com.